together. An interview series exploring the possibilities of cross-architecture development with those who live it. I'm your host, Nicole Huseman. Molecular Dynamics, and in turn, Gromax, is the bedrock of the Folding at Home project. Through Molecular Dynamics, or MD, scientists and researchers are studying the functional mechanisms of proteins, the process of protein folding, and where drug molecules bind and how they exert their effects. Gromax is one of the world's most widely used open source MD applications. Today, I'm happy to welcome two guests to the program who have worked together in this space for many years. Eric Lindahl is a biophysics professor at Stockholm University and KTH Royal Institute of Technology, and he's been instrumental in the development of Gromax. Great to have you with us, Eric. It's great to be on the show, Nicole. And Roland Schultz, parallel software engineer at Intel. He's worked on Gromax for over a decade, contributing primarily to parallel efficiency improvements and code modernization. Thanks for joining us, Roland. Thank you for having me. Eric, can you tell us more about MD and how it benefits the world around us? So I happen to work on biomolecular systems, but this is something that's used for a whole lot of particle-based systems, everything from the proteins inside our bodies to the largest galaxies in the world. And that has to do with that any objects interacting in the classical world tend to be described by Isaac Newton's equations of motion that all of us has probably studied in high school, at least. These are approximate equations, but they're approximate in the sense that they tend to describe 99.999% of everything we see around us really well. And that goes for the atoms inside the molecules in our cells, too. There are certainly cases where we might need quantum mechanics and other very detailed ways of describing the interaction, but having the detail is not enough. So if I, I can make a slight analogy that, you know, if you have one of these toys when you were a kid, when you're putting blocks of different shapes into small holes, the physicist's way of doing this would be to calculate with equations exactly which block should fit a hole, and then you only had one try to fit the block. But the reason why a two-year-old is much better at that is that the two-year-old simply tests a million times instead. And that's essentially what we're doing with molecular dynamics too, that we're mimicking this way nature has of randomly moving small molecules because temperature gives all atoms a bit of velocity. And the way our molecules will interact and potentially bind each other is simply they're testing billions of trillions of quadrillions of different conformations in our cells every millisecond. Now, since we know these interactions, we can describe them reasonably well, at least with physics. That means that we can mimic this process inside computers. And this is actually a pretty old setup. It was done first in the 1950s and 1960s with very simple systems. And then, even then, it turned out that we can use physics and computers to understand things that have been virtually impossible to understand from experiments. And in particular, we can also understand why they happen. And then we, as so many other areas of research, have, of course, benefited tremendously from the uh, semiconductor revolution that Intel has been a part of. And because computers are now probably a billion times faster than they were in the 1960s, that also means that we can reach the scales a billion times longer in time and space and actually use this to study things that even when I was a student, we thought that we would never be able to do in computers. And today, not only do we do them in computers, we're increasingly moving things away from the lab because it's difficult, complicated, wet and expensive into the computer where we can not only do it faster, but also understand why it happens. 
What a great overview of MD, Eric. Can you talk about some of the challenges that it brings? Sure. In essence, it's actually very, very simple. We have one atom here and one atom here, and then we want to calculate how much they're interacting. And that's essentially Coulomb's law of interaction. It's a very, very simple calculation. Probably only takes 20 floating point operations or so. The problem is that we have many atoms. We have many, 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 many atoms. And in addition to that, even when we calculated this, how all pairs of atoms in a protein with 100,000 of them interact, we now also need to repeat this because one step only gives us a one femtosecond step in time. So the problem is not necessarily that it's complicated equations, but that we need to calculate them an insane number of times. That is very simple to solve as long as computers get faster all the time. So if we only had those one exahertz processors or something, this would be really easy to solve in a single thread. Unfortunately, we're not going to have exahertz processors. We're going to need to go parallel instead. And that's where the challenges start, to getting these things that should execute in well under a millisecond, but do that execution spread over tens of thousands of processors and threads. And that's where people like Roland come in. He's far more skilled at the parallelization aspects of this than I am. You know, I'm reminded international supercomputing earlier this year, Trish Damkroger talked about the convergence of AI with HPC. Roland, are you seeing this convergence at MD? So what I definitely see is that the computational challenges Eric mentioned are very similar for both AI as well as MD. Primary hardware requirement is a lot of computational power. That's not actually true for all of HPC. There are quite a few HPC apps which need huge memory or very fast file system and so on. But for MD, it's really focused on the floating point performance your supercomputer has. And that tends to be true for AI too. So as people are pushing the envelope for more and more compute, partly driven by AI, MD benefits too. Uh, and then, of course, the technologies we use on the software side with programming languages and so on, and the, the recent improvements in those areas, there we benefit from MD too. As far as actually like usage of AI, before you can actually do MD, you need to like have a force field, which describes how all the atoms interact and the training of those force fields. There I've seen people start using AI technologies. For the actual analysis of MD, I think most people are still sticking to traditional technologies, but Eric would know better than me. Sure, I'd be happy to expand a bit. AI is occasionally a bit of a buzzword, but the part where this definitely does work is in the analysis, because when we have these proteins moving over billions of frames, this becomes virtually impossible to analyze with any traditional ways of regression. So general machine learning techniques are used a lot to try to identify what part of a protein is moving. Is there some sort of synchronous motion here that might be correlated to binding or something? And there's been a lot of amazing development in trying to understand what happens with this massive amounts of data. And that is definitely used in production, even in all the COVID-19 uh, drug design projects. Then there is this other part Roland talked about that there is a limitation to accuracy because we need speed. On the other end, if you only go for accuracy, we don't get speed and then we can't handle realistic systems. So in, there are trials where people try to use artificial intelligence to predict how atoms would interact. And I, the nirvana here would be to have a speed with classical MD, but the accuracy of quantum chemistry. And there is some very promising development going on there. The caveat is still that it's still very early. And the problem is not so much that it doesn't work. It does work in some cases. The hard part is predicting when it fails, right? 
because I don't think any of us want to use a drug that might have been designed by something that it might have gotten the mechanism wrong. Classical MD is certainly wrong in lots of cases too, like even more cases, but we understand classical MD quite well and we know what kind of accuracy to expect from it and we know when it goes wrong, we typically understand why it went wrong. And both the blessing and curse of AI is that it's occasionally really good. In other cases, it fails miserably, and we don't really understand why it fails, and particularly not when it will fail. But I definitely think we're going to see more of that in the next few years. So, Eric, when we talked earlier, you talked about this immense innovation in hardware. And I'd love for you and Rowan to talk more about where you see the innovation in hardware going, how you see the evolution in CPUs and accelerators, where is that headed? So in one of the talks I give, I have a plot where I compare computers over the last, since 1999, I think, or something. And I've deliberately not removed anything. I just keep adding to this plot. On the one hand, this hardware challenges occurs. It's constantly with people like Roland and me and my entire team, we keep fighting this, right? Then it's a battle of very small wins. We gain a factor 10% or maybe 20% if we're really lucky. But I think what's occasionally useful for it is to take a step back and imagine the next generation machines, whether we call them exascale or post-exascale or something, it's not really that important. But within five or 10 years, we're going to have more floating point operations available than I could have imagined in my wildest dreams. The price for that, though, is that you will not have them available in one computer, in the sense we think of a computer, one chip or something but you might have to use, say, a billion functional elements. And whether these functional elements are CINDY units or processor elements in a GPU or something, that doesn't really matter. On the one hand, this is amazing because we will have more power than ever, but the challenge is that it's going to be spread over so many different elements that no traditional way of parallelizing this is going to work. And that kind of brings you some freedom too, because it means that you have to completely reinvent. And I think the community is doing that. Like people like Roland, he has had this amazing large scale simulations with Lignocellulose that they've gotten them to scale better than I could never have imagined. We're doing ensembles with lots of different molecules and simply do get sampling. And it's kind of the same way that a chemistry experiment works. It's very rare to do chemistry experiments with just one molecule. You typically have a billion molecules in your test tube, right? So I think that this limitations we're heading to in hardware, that we're not getting those exahertz processors, that's also leading to a lot of innovation. But the innovations on the hardware side that we tend to first see as limitations for us, and the next step that actually leads to innovation in software and science too. Roland, I'd love your thoughts as well on this topic. I very much agree with Eric that clearly everything's going to get more parallel because that's the way of making more powerful machines. We don't really have other ways of doing it. And as Eric said, this makes the challenge of doing those kind of calculations, which naturally have somewhat limited parallelism, very, very challenging. If you do a global simulation of the earth, you have automatically a lot of data parallelism. And it might be a bit simpler, but if you only have 100,000 atoms to simulate, spreading those over 100,000 compute units is inherently extremely difficult because every compute unit gets a tiny, tiny amount of work. So MD is one of the areas where we see this, people also call it strong scaling, that strong scaling to this very high parallelism is, is very, very challenging. And I think what we can do from a vendor side is primarily help with stuff like technology tools. So improving programming languages and other tools, given that 
scientists will need to do more and more to enable these computers. At least the tools should be as good as possible to make the work as painless as possible. Absolutely. If you were able to design either a solution stack or tools tailored specifically for MD, what features or capabilities would this stack or these tools have? I don't want a stack specific for MD. And that might sound very strange, but science has tried this. Not this, actually even for MD, but... So the problem is that it's not difficult to make even a hardware that's specific to something. It's been tried in bioinformatics. It's going to cost you $100 million or something, and then the vendor will sell three copies of it, and then they will close business a year later. And then all that effort that we invested in porting through that hardware will be lost. And we've tried this over and over again. And I would argue that the reason why scientists in general are so happy with a Linux, x86, and the standard solutions is that it keeps paying back, right? Because we are investing in something that the entire community, and now I'm not even thinking scientific community, the worldwide community in computing, we develop it together. So if I got something that was tailor-made for me, I would also need to have a business and market that could sustain the development. And I don't think that's possible for any branch of science. So surprisingly, I like the straight jacket of having languages such as CUDA or SICL that tell me like, look, it's not magic. I can't just write my science and then have the compiler magically translated. That would be really nice, but it doesn't work in practice. So what I like with these parallel languages is that Without going into all the detail about the hardware, they tell me that, Eric, to express the fundamental parallelism in your scientific problem in the algorithm, that's my job. And I have to do that as a scientist. And we're reasonably good at that because I understand my algorithm well. And I even think I understand my algorithm better than the compiler does. So I am able to identify that parallelism. And then, of course, all the bolts, all the details, the way to translate this into different hardware generations, I have no idea about that. The compiler is much better at that. But I think that the genius, and I think one should give him a bit of credit here, because Hankuda was the first really good language at doing this. And that's what I like about Sickle in particular now, is that we're getting portable languages to do this, that I, as a scientist, had to express the parallelism and the algorithm, and then I have tools that can help me with everything else. So let's shift a little bit and talk about Gromax. Eric, can you talk a little bit about how important Gromax software is in the fight against COVID, and also what it means to you to have been such a big part of its development. I think COVID is a very difficult situation in the world, and I don't think any single technology is going to solve this with the possible of some parts of vaccine development. But even vaccine development is probably a dozen different techniques internally. And I certainly don't think molecular simulation on its own is going to solve this. What I'm seeing in the world, and this is not just the consortium we are involved in, but several users, is that MD is helping us to understand, for instance, how the different parts of a dimer are moving together. When a ligand is binding to some of these proteins, how does that change the function? Uh, so I think at this stage, MD is primarily helping us with understanding how things work on the molecular level and possibly helping us to find candidates that are worth testing. At this stage, I think all of the real tests will still have to be done in the lab to confirm things. On the other hand, had you asked me 10 years ago, I never thought that we would have been able to do even this much. So give this 10 or 20 years, and I might actually have to eat some of that stuff I'm saying, because at that point, we might do a whole lot more of the actual antiviral design in computers. 
as scientists, on the one hand, we love our science and I love these equations of motions and I love just sitting with code and getting computers to do things that I thought that they couldn't do. But there is also a deep satisfaction that what you're doing is productive and helping other people. And I think in the purest sense of egotism, right, that we want meaning to what we're doing. And particularly be working long hours that it matters is important, not necessarily in terms of money or anything, but those hours are not wasted. And in science too, there are ups and downs, but in particular in those downs and when you're swearing a bit, you realize, well, at least on average, there were 10 more papers published today where people used whatever you were using. And that gives a bit of long-term satisfaction. And not just a bit, actually. I think it matters a lot that you're helping other people at all science. Roland, we'd also love for you to chime in on this. You've been instrumental as well in the advancement of Gromax. In your view, what have been some of the most promising developments? So from a computational perspective, the biggest improvements we've done are on the one hand scaling to very many nodes. Gromex made a lot of improvements in that area over the years. Berg has, has done amazing work with like really good domain decomposition methods, minimizing the amount of communication needed between them, and then coupling this with a PME method for the long-range electrostatic, where it helped with to scale that part also to many nodes. So we've done yeah, a lot of work to go to many nodes. And then, of course, on the compute side within the node, on the one hand, you can use accelerators and the improvements with accelerators over the last few years has been very strong and Gromit can make good use of those. On the other hand, there are still a lot of clusters out there which also use CPUs and we've made a lot of improvements towards making best use of the SIMD units. Gromax has like a custom SIMD library to make really efficient use of the SIMD units within CPUs. As one of those who is actually currently running Folding at Home on my iMac, I was really excited to see the project surpass the exascale barrier, exceeding the compute performance of the top 500 supercomputers. And I wonder, Roland, how do you see Folding and Gromax, you know, one of the engines that's powering Folding, how do you see these growing in the future? It's amazing that people can contribute their CPU time. They're not using themselves towards helping science. The comparison to supercomputers, one has to be a little bit careful with. There are really amazing things one can do with like distributed computing projects like folding at home, but they're also somewhat limited in what type of calculations you can do. Eric earlier mentioned ensemble methods. So if you have uh, very many small molecules, you can give each small molecule to one of the volunteers and they can independently calculate it. And then this works really great. If you have larger proteins, that becomes difficult because what supercomputers have, they have this really fast network so we can paralyze the work over more than one node. The internet isn't fast enough for that. So for these distributed computing projects, we can't like do these large molecules and distribute the work across multiple ones of those. Those still have to run on real supercomputers. But there's yeah, a lot of research which we now can move towards distributed computing to keep the supercomputers for those works where they're really absolutely necessary. I can have a bit of an analogy there. So we all started out doing this the supercomputer way, and we wanted the largest possible computers, which when I was a student was roughly 40 CPUs or something, which is what I have in my desktop nowadays. 
And I guess an analogy there, assuming that you would like to map out the public transit system in New York, the way we historically did things that we would hire one volunteer and pay this person to try to map out the entire public transit system, that would take a while. While you could argue that the way Folding at Home does it is that they get 100,000 people and track them all with their cell phones. And now that's, of course, amazing, right? But that does not mean that you could take 10 billion people because everyone in the world is not in New York City first. And the other part, if the time scale I can cover is so short that each person only has time to take one step, that's not going to help me to map out the public transit system in New York. The tracking time has to be at least long enough to cover part of their actual trip. Otherwise, it's not going to help. And this is where we need supercomputers too, because for some things like a protein on the surface of COVID binding a ligand or something, that can take a microsecond, which is a very short time in the lab, but it's a very long time in the simulations. So there are lots of processes where the individual desktop computers are not fast enough. And for that, we do need the supercomputers. So Eric, what does this mean for exascale? I think we're mistaken. With, we're seeing exascale as a goal. It's not. It's a milestone, right? That... And we're going to fly by it, I hope. So at one point in time, when I was a student, we had these amazingly fast computers. They were Cray machines. Uh, like I've heard this probably around 1998. And we had computers which in the ballpark of, say, probably a 100 teraflop or so. But that type of computing we have in our pockets today, in our cell phones. And of course, when that first computer was bought, uh, built, people probably said, well, do we even need this amount of computing power? And we've kept our scenarios of that, do we even need this amount of computing power? But what we today call exascale, just wait 20 years, I bet you're going to have it in your pocket. And this is going to have our personal assistant do things that we can't even imagine today. So this is a process that will keep being a challenge, but it will also keep giving back. So the point is not to build the exascale machine and stop. It's the next milestone. That's a great point. So as we wrap up today, Eric, can you tell our listeners where they can go for more information about developments in MD and Gromax? Sure. Anything is available at www.gromax.org. That site is a typical scientific site that can be a bit boring and everything. But the cool thing that this entire project is open. Uh, so you can track everything that's happening in development in GitLab and everything. There are mailing lists and quite a few of us are active on Twitter too in these discussions. If you want a great general introduction to MD, uh, I would actually very much recommend the Folding at Home sites. They're using several tools, not just Gromax, but there are a bunch of beautiful blog posts and video explanations explaining science in general, molecular dynamics in particular, and molecular dynamics of protein folding in very much particular. And I think it's a great resource to get started. And Roland, is there anything more you'd like to share with folks? Any other resources they should check out? Yes, the same as for Gromex, all the SQL development is in Open2. So both the SQL development we do specifically for Gromex that is available on the Gromex GitLab, and then all the SQL development from the SQL compiler is on GitHub. And so both of those are in Open, both the development of the, the planning as well as the actual source. Great, thank you. And there's good news here and something that I'm really excited about. We're going to be picking up this conversation next month with Eric and Roland, where we'll talk about porting Gromax across heterogeneous architectures. So listeners, if you have any questions for Eric and Roland, drop them into the Twitter feed at Intel DevTools, and we'll work them into the next discussions. We touched lightly on CUDA and Sickle, 
and we're going to talk a lot more about the tools available to you in our next discussion. So we invite you to tune into that one as well. For now, Eric, thanks so much for your insights. This work is so vital in addressing our global pandemic. Thank you so much, Nicole. It was a great first discussion, and I'm looking forward to going into the gory details next time. Excellent. And Roland, your knowledge is so invaluable. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And thanks to all of you out there for joining us. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.